The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. As we said in the welcome, what we want to see in this service is for Christ to be big, to grow in our sight, not because he would grow, but because we would grow. And this is a perfect text that God has given us for that to see Jesus, that our eyes would would go above the fog and above the clouds and see Jesus exalted, see his victory, see all that he's done. But to see it, you're going to have to put your, your thinking caps on through this passage because like in verse 19, one scholar did his dissertation on it and he came up with 180 different interpretations for verse 19. Now, there's not gonna be that many but what we're going to see is going to require some, some thought as we walk through this, but it is worth it. So I'm praying that you will hang with me through this passage. Let's begin by seeing what is it about. Put it in context. What is it trying to accomplish? If you look at the first verse of the passage that we ended with, so the the ending of last week's passage and the beginning of this week's passage and the beginning of next week's passage, I think you'll see what's going on. So verse 17, the last thing we heard in last week's passage was this, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that be God's will than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. So that note of suffering. The first thing that Peter says in these five verses in our passage is about Christ's suffering. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. Do you hear him tying us back? Our suffering, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So our suffering, Christ's suffering, what's the first verse next week? Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So you see what he's doing, this sandwich structure our suffering, and then chapter 4, verse 1 again, our suffering, but armed with Christ's suffering. He says, I don't want you, Peter's a good pastor, I don't want you to go through this world of suffering unarmed, ill-prepared. I want you to be armed with the suffering of Christ, all that he's done through his suffering, so that you'll be able to face it with a certain way of thinking, a certain perspective, a certain approach. In other words, in our suffering, he says you must see and savor Christ's suffering in such a way that you're armed with it, that it's not like in some mental closet somewhere that you have to go get once in a while, but something that's so close, at your fingertips, on your tongue, strapped to you, armed and ready. You have to have it that close as part of you, or you're going to be a sitting duck in suffering. You have to be armed with what Christ has done. Because it's not a stockpile of money or power or influence or survival savvy that's going to get you through what you're facing, Peter says. It's going to be a certain way of thinking that comes from knowing Christ. They are to rest in his victory in suffering, knowing that their suffering, suffering can have the final word for them because it didn't have the final word for him. Arm yourself with that. This is the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison 
because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask that Jesus would be seen, that Jesus would be exalted, that Jesus would be honored, that in this text that unfolds all that he is, all that he's done, oh God, may we not be blinded, may we not be hindered in our seeing from the fog of suffering, may we not be muted in our hearts towards him, may your, the volume of your voice not be quiet, not be silent, but speak volumes to us of all that you are for us, of all that you've done for us, of all that you are reigning in heaven, Lord Jesus. Oh God, we need to see it. We need to savor it. It needs to become part of us so that we can make it in all that we face. Be gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you notice next week we're gonna be talking about our suffering. And it seems like this is what's in our face. We think about Hurricane Laura. We think about Kenosha, Wisconsin. We think about Catherine Hope. We think about everything that we're facing. And, and next week's service is gonna be a little bit different. We're gonna have a shorter sermon and more time devoted to lament and prayer. But in order to do that, we need to see what it is that is our hope, that the one that's for us is greater than everything that's against us or else our lament will not be real. It, it'll be like a lead balloon. It won't go anywhere. So this week, we need to see this main point. Here's the point of these five verses. Believers must arm themselves in their suffering with the full truth of what Jesus has done in his journey from suffering to glory and all authority. I'll say that again. Believers must arm themselves in their suffering with the full truth of what Jesus has done in his journey from suffering to glory and full authority. It's the only way that we're gonna be armed with what we need because of what we face. So arm yourselves, here's the outline, in seeing this journey of Jesus from suffering to glory, there's three points along this journey that he wants us to see. First, in verse 18, the accomplishment of Christ. What did Christ accomplish in his suffering? So first, the accomplishment of Christ, then the next step of the journey, the announcement of Christ, and then third, the ascension of Christ. So the accomplishment of Christ, verse 18, the announcement of Christ, verses 19 to 21, and the ascension of Christ, verse 22. So let's see it. First, look at his accomplishment, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So notice first, let's ask a few questions to dig deeper into this. We see already what he accomplished, namely he, he brought us to God through what he suffered. But the question is, as we go deeper, is first, why does Peter say he suffered rather than he died? So many places you have Christ died and he rose. And of course, we're talking about his death, but why does Peter say suffered instead of died? And the answer, I hope is obvious, it's that word also. It's from verse 17, in our suffering, Peter wants us to see Christ also 
suffered. So he's trying to form a bridge of solidarity between the path that Jesus was on and the path that we're now on. That we're not alone on this, that Jesus was the forerunner of it. That's why he says, for, I want you to see this. The path that you're on, Jesus was the forerunner and he suffered. So you understand suffering is God's will. That God brings good out of it, even when it doesn't look like it, even when you can't identify it. Who on the day of Calvary had eyes to see all that God was accomplishing? When it looks like just ultimate evil is on display, God is bringing ultimate good out of it. How do we know that believers shouldn't fear suffering as being part of God's will? Look at Christ. Look at all that God accomplished through the suffering of Christ and have that solidarity together. In other words, we're on the path from suffering to glory and we're not alone because Jesus is the forerunner of that path and we follow him being united to to him. So then you ask the question, why? Isn't that always where we go in suffering? Why? Why, what's going on? Why did Jesus have to suffer? You can see it first in those two words, for sins. It's a prepositional phrase. Every word in the word of God breathed out by God matters, including these two little words, for sins. What does it mean? 54 times you see this phrase, this prepositional phrase, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. More than 44 times it refers to the sin offering. So here it's using sacrificial language to say Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, why did he suffer? Why did he die? He's a sin offering. He's a sacrifice. Now, When we understand him to be a sacrifice for sin, that's when we get into this question mark. Okay, I understand, Peter, you want to connect Jesus' suffering and our suffering. Verse 17 and verse 18. But what about Christ's suffering is unique? You can see it with that word, once. Christ also suffered. There's the solidarity, his suffering and our suffering. But then he says, once. That is once for all. That is definitive. That is there's nothing that could ever take this away. He suffered once and for all. That sense of finality, decisiveness. He suffered in a unique way. Believers don't suffer for the sins of others. Christ did. He suffered once and for all as a sin offering. How? That's what Peter stresses here. How was he a sin offering? The righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, how was Jesus a sacrifice for sin? He was a substitutionary sacrifice. He suffered in our place for us. The punishment that we deserved, he received because he was suffering not for his own sins, not for anything wrong that he had done. Peter has already told us he's the lamb without blemish or spot, chapter 1. He's already told us, chapter 2, that he did not sin. There's no deceit in his mouth. He's not suffering for his own sin. He's the sinless sacrifice without blemish or spot. So why? He's suffering for our sins, receiving what we deserved in our place. This is called penal substitutionary atonement. And I want to recover it because so many people throughout church history hate this phrase. I'm convinced that so many liberals who look at this hate it because it's like the demons hate it. 
because it has accomplished so much. It's just like God to have this, this phrase that should be for us like our greatest joy, be the chief attack under assault always. The idea that God sent forth his son to suffer for us, to be punished in our place. Some people say it sounds like cosmic child abuse. With all due respect, it means you have no understanding of the story of Scripture to see that again and again and again, God does not excuse sin. God does not simply overlook it. A, a holy, righteous God cannot just excuse it. It must be punished. Every sin will be judged, and therefore, every sin will either be paid for personally by us in hell or by Jesus as our substitute on the cross. That's the only two places sins go for judgment, either the judgment tree or the final judgment of hell. Penal means punishment. Jesus was a sacrifice. He bore the weight of the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserved. Substitutionary means it's for us, it's in our place. And atonement, atonement means that it is the perfect sacrifice that reconciles us to God. It brings us to God. It is this word that sometimes people say atonement means at one mint, estranged from God, separated from him by our sins. Jesus comes, the righteous one, the only righteous one, the only sinless one to take our place. So students, you're gonna be taking a lot of tests. You can understand this. What if we say there, there is a test that everybody has to take, and if you pass it, you get eternal life. If you fail it, you get eternal death. Pretty high stakes. And in this test, what do we get? What do we do? How do we perform morally? Well, you know the answer. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means we fail. It means we're sinners. We can't pass the test. And I find it so tragically funny that people want to try to, to have some kind of self-righteousness where they say they're better than somebody else. It's like saying, I got a better F than you. How is that a boast that anybody wants to make? My F is better than your F. It's an F. The only way that eternal life is going to happen is God says to Jesus, I'm sending you. And Jesus says, yes, I will do it. And he takes the same test, takes on our flesh, tempted in every way like we were, took every question that we could take and passed it all sinlessly with flying colors. And then God says, if you will believe, if you will receive all that he's done, I will transfer and give him your score. And he will pay the punishment for it. And I will give you his score. That in him we become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is there anything better for your guilty conscience knowing that you can't pass this test than to know Jesus came and Jesus lived perfectly and Jesus died so that we could be totally free that's why it says righteous for the unrighteous. What does he accomplish? That he might bring us to God. This is the word, bring us. In the New Testament, it always means there's access that Jesus has opened up to God. 
so that now there's no separation anymore. Now there's no hostility anymore. Jesus has opened up the way to the Father. Romans chapter 5, verse 2, through him, that is Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Everything around you feels shaky. Understand this, you're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken because by Jesus, he has opened up access into grace on which we stand. All we know is grace because of what Jesus did. That's our standing place. Or Ephesians chapter two, we had no hope, we were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. This is why Jesus suffered. Look at what he accomplished. And don't just look in general, like abstract. Don't just look from a distance. Don't just look and have this, like I know where this is at in my closet. I know where this is at on the shelf somewhere. Look and love the fact that you have a relationship. You call God Father because of all that Jesus has done. And so look at his suffering and see what he accomplished and then trust God in your suffering. Arm yourselves. You see God in his purpose in Jesus' suffering. Do you really think, therefore, if Jesus suffered so much for you to bring you to God that somehow he's gonna stop caring about you now? That somehow your suffering now means he stopped loving you? He's no longer for you. He doesn't have a plan to bless you. You look at the cross and you see the truth. He made me his own, not to discard me, but to keep me. That's what we see in the cross. Now the next journey, the next part of the journey here, the good news gets even better because it doesn't just say that Jesus suffered in order to save us, to bring us to God. What that means is the greatest gift that we could receive is not just forgiveness of sins, but God himself. He gives us himself so that now, what you really want in this relationship is not just things from God, uh, uh, no guilty conscience, but he's giving you all of himself. It couldn't be better than that. That's why in the second step of the journey now, in the announcement of Christ, you see what this all means. Look at verses 19 to 20. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So now what is happening after the cross? All we have here in verse 18 is Jesus died. What about his resurrection? Is he still alive? Does he still make intercession for us? We see it now in verses 19 to 20. What I said in the introduction is that one scholar said there are about 180 different interpretations here. Now, many commentaries are gonna give you the three or four major options. But what I'm going to give you, rather than give you all the options, is tell you how I read it, and maybe it'll help you to know this is the main interpretation. This is the, almost the consensus view among commentators. So nothing here that's, that's novel or I'm just making up what you need to see to be anchored in these verses is that it's really a contrast between two participles, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. That's the anchor point 
of this. And what are these? These are two fixed points of reference in the life of Jesus. And I think it refers to his death and his resurrection. It's obvious his death put to death in the flesh. And what is the opposing side of that? The complementary side of that? It is his resurrection. This word being made alive is a reference to the resurrection in so many other places in the New Testament. John 5, 21, Romans 4, 17, Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 36, 45. This is a word referring to his resurrection. I think that's what it means here. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but by the Holy Spirit is made alive and given resurrection life. That's what you see in 1 Timothy 3.16 and Romans 1.4. It is the Holy Spirit that is active in the resurrection so that when we read in Romans 6, the one who gave life to him, the Holy Spirit, will give life to us, resurrection, life to us. That is the pairing. And then, if we're seeing this as his death and resurrection, now we have another participle. It says, he went. He went in that resurrection body by the power of the Spirit, he went somewhere and he did something. What did he do? It doesn't tell us explicitly where he went. It says what he did. So it's wrapped up there in understanding what did he do. It says he made proclamation. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So let's get down to business here. What does that mean? Spirits in prison. What's the proclamation? Who are the spirits in prison? Well, let's, let's have a little, a, a little bit of a, a study here and have some clues begin to pile up so we understand what it means. Everywhere in the New Testament, when you have spirits in the plural, everywhere except once, Hebrews talks about the, the spirits of, of people made perfect. That's obviously a reference to people. Everywhere else, spirits is a reference to angelic beings. So here, I think that's exactly what it means. Angelic beings, he made proclamation to them. And then he says they were disobedient in the days of Noah. So these angelic beings, disobedient in the days of Noah, who's that? It's going to be helpful here, not just to look at this passage, but to look at a couple of others so that we see a common theme. First, Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 4. See the same theme. For if God did not spare angels, I think that's a good reference to see, that's the spirits he means. If he didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains, here prison there, chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then right after that is a reference to Noah. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of, un, of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here you've got spirits in prison, disobedient in the days of Noah. Second Peter says these are the angels that fell and were committed to chains, awaiting judgment. Jude 6 says exactly the same thing. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains. Here, prison again. Eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what's happening? What we have are angels that didn't keep their proper place, spirits, fallen angels that disobeyed in the days of Noah, and you remember the flood. So what's happening here in Genesis chapter 6 is you've got the angels referred to as the sons of God who see that the daughters of men are beautiful, and so they, they take whoever they want, and there's procreation. And what the flood refers to is in reference to that. It's almost a, a perfect corollary to the fall of Adam and Eve because you have the same three words. 
Eve saw that the fruit was tov, good, beautiful, and she took. That was the fall. Angels didn't keep their proper dwelling because they saw that they were tov, beautiful, good, and they took. Now, what's happening in the flood? When God sees that the thoughts of man are only evil all the time, continually. What he's done in creation is he's separated the heavens and the earth. He separated the sea from the land. That was creation. Genesis 6 is the uncreation. Where now angels cross that proper dwelling from heaven to earth, and God is now going to bring back the land and the sea. Uncreation through the flood, through judgment. And what we have then, a couple more clues. In verse 19 and verse 22, you have the same word for what Jesus did, went and went. And it's, it's perfect to see this as a progression of exaltation. He went in the resurrection, made proclamation to these disobedient spirits, and went, has gone up into heaven. You see that as a progression, same exact word, verse 19, verse 22, and in verse 19 and verse 22, it's the same object in view. He went and made proclamation over these disobedient angels, and verse 22, he went and ascended to heaven over all of the angelic authorities. This is a verse that's all about when Jesus won the victory, first thing that he did is he let the demons know you lost. Why does that matter? You better believe that every time in the New Testament when the demons meet Jesus, they say, what are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us before the time? Jesus says now, this has happened. The victory has been won. You lost. They'll never forget that speech, I guarantee you. We, Peter says, don't you dare forget it either. I'm letting you overhear what Jesus did so that you won't give in to fear to them. In so many places in our world, that is the main fear. The spirits, the spirit world, that, that somehow if you don't make blood sacrifices or, or atonement to evil spirits, they're gonna take away your kids or they're gonna kill your livestock or your crops aren't gonna be good. And Peter is speaking into this worldview and says, don't you dare fear those that Jesus announced that they're defeated. Don't fear those that Christ defeated. Fear only him. Rejoice only in him. Trust only in him. I'm letting you hear his victory speech so that you won't be afraid of what's already lost. Now, I want to go to verse 22 so bad, but we can't go there yet. Because you would think at this point maybe the application that Peter draws out would be, therefore, come to Jesus how do you come to Jesus? What does a response of faith look like? I remember in my first church, they, they were used to having an altar call every week. So you could, have, you could have a sermon about anything and then at the end, it was understood, oh, better call people to Christ. Come up to the front, make a decision. And, and it was identified by physically walking forward, you're becoming a Christian, coming to the, the altar. I'm like, altar? What are we sacrificing on it? What's an altar up here? So I, I didn't do that. I, I was calling people to come to Christ all through the sermon. And then some of the deacons there said, I, I, some people are saying we're not as evangelistic because we don't have an altar call. And I said, how do you think that if the altar call or the anxious bench came along with Charles Finney and wasn't there in the beginning with the apostles, how did the early church come to Christ? if they didn't have an altar call. And it was like news to them. They didn't have an altar call. How, what, 
Jesus said you're supposed to publicly acknowledge me. How are we supposed to publicly acknowledge me? I said, I'm so glad you asked. You know that we're a Baptist church? And the answer is baptism. Every culture knows that it's real and public when you're baptized and you say, this is what I believe. This is a line drawn in the sand. I'm with Jesus. This is my life. That's where Peter goes. Baptism. So let's go there. We shouldn't be afraid to as Baptists. Peter looks in verse 21 at what was happening in the days of Noah and we see that it was cosmically, epically bad. Deep darkness was spreading, judgment was coming, and yet God was patient. He was patient. He provided a way of salvation called the ark and he waited and he waited and he waited and only eight people went in. And yet, he saved them. In the midst of all this darkness, God's mercy was shining because eight people trusted him and entered the ark. I think sometimes when we talk about Noah's ark, it's like precious moments, Christianity, you know, it's like something that's in church nurseries and you've got it on the wall and here's Noah with all the animals two by two and like we, we had a little toddler's thing for our kids where it's like here's Noah and here's his wife and they're paired up with two giraffes and two elephants and it looks great. Like who wouldn't want to be with all, it's like a zoo on the ark and isn't this great? The animals aren't destroying each other. But if, if you were to draw that to scale on the nursery wall, what's in the water? You're not gonna see on a nursery wall dead bodies floating in the water. That's what it was. Judgment everywhere. So what's happening and what does that have to do with baptism? Peter's saying it looks dark today as well. Evil all around us. Persecution coming at us. Evil spirits working against us. Judgment is coming. But God, in his perfect patience, has given us a better ark, namely Jesus. Jesus is the ark of atonement, the ark of salvation. He's provided it. Who's going to enter in? Who's going to be saved? He's saying this is baptism. In fact, in the text, it's very emphatic. Notice that he says, baptism in water corresponds to, which corresponds to. This word isn't just like he, he had an idea about an, a random analogy or an interesting parallel. Literally, it refers to an antitype and a prototype. There's a picture that comes before that is anticipating the reality that's going to come later and it's pointing to it. And in New Testament typology, which is this talking about, that fulfillment is always an escalation, an advancement over the original. So what he's saying is, in our baptism, it's not that the, the, the ark is kind of reenacted. No, no, no. It's that the ark of Noah was pre-enacting our baptism that's coming later. That's the picture. He's saying, look at this. This picture was for you. It's pre-enacting something. It's, it's showing you the promise in pictorial form that what God was going to do for the final judgment is he's going to provide an ark and it's all being pre-enacted here so that you would understand when the waters of judgment are gonna rise around you and there's no hope and you're gonna be killed with everybody else, Jesus, the ark, the door's open. Enter in while there's time. God is still patient. Praise God, still willing to save. It corresponds to that as prototype and anti-type. Noah is the setup. Baptism is the punchline. That's his point. Now, what does it mean then? We're still trying to understand baptism. Baptism saying Jesus is the ark. What does it mean that eight people 
were brought safely through the water. That's a little ambiguous, isn't it? Through the water. We're not saved through the water. We need to be saved from the water, right? We need to be, the, the water is the, the judgment. It is the danger. It is the threatening thing to kill you forever. So you need to be saved from water by the ark. It's part of the process. Judgment is all around you, and the ark is the only thing that can save you from that judgment. And so when you are buried with Christ in baptism, it's symbolizing death. He died for us. We die with him under the waters of judgment and were raised up with him to newness of life. Baptism is saying that though we deserve to die, though we deserve that judgment, Jesus took it for us. And in union with Christ, our ark of atonement, we're buried, we're saved, we walk in newness of life. Now, what does it mean then, verse 20, baptism now saves you. He says it just unflinchingly. Baptism now saves you. He doesn't mean magically and automatically because he immediately tells us, verse 21, he just shuts that sheep gate, not a removal of dirt from the body. He says, don't think of the physical act of baptism as what saves you. It's not the, some magical thing that if you fall into the baptistry accidentally, now you're saved. Now you're united with Christ. That's not the picture. It's not something physically that happens, like removing dirt from the body. It's what baptism says. It symbolizes. Verse 21. What is it? What does save? An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This word appeal means a request, an appeal that believers would have a, a good conscience through what Jesus has done. What does that mean? Believers at baptism ask God on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus to cleanse their conscience and forgive their sins. This verse is so remarkably close to another verse about access to God, Hebrews 10, 19. Listen to this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here it is, here's our response. Let us draw near, he's opened up the way of access, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. What baptism is, is it's an appeal that someone makes to God. I've got this guilty conscience because of all my sins and I'm very aware of them. And yet I'm appealing that they would be washed, forgiven, that my conscience even would be cleansed, that I would have full assurance based on what Jesus did only. Nothing that I've done can deal with these sins that I feel just tagging with me, just like cockaburs on me. I'm so aware of them. I'm so aware of all my moral filth, God. And yet, baptism is this appeal. The only thing that can cleanse all of this sin, all of this evil conscience, is what Jesus did when he died and rose again. Now, what does that mean for you? I don't want you to think baptism is somehow magical. What it is, it's the promise of the gospel physically enacted, okay? Let's, let's take the analogy of a wedding, right? The symbolism of the wedding ring, what does it say? It's, it's symbolizing the marriage. It doesn't make the marriage. Let's say that two people are getting married. There they are, and it comes to that moment of the service where the husband's supposed to have the, what rings, what, what's, uh, 
What's the word? What symbols do you give to each other? What tokens do you give to each other to signify this marriage, these commitments? You're supposed to say, these rings, right? With this ring, the I wed. What if he forgot them? Like that awkward moment, like, is the marriage done? Is it totally invalid? Can they not get married now? Of course they can still get married. But what's going to happen is that there's going to be an understanding something's missing. I need to rectify this right away. In the same way, can a believer still be a believer and not be baptized? Well, yes. It doesn't mean your faith is invalid, and it doesn't mean that somehow you're, you're not, heaven's not open anymore to you, but it means something's missing. The New Testament has no category for an unbaptized believer if you have the opportunity to believe and be baptized. The thief on the cross couldn't. All of you can. So if you're not baptized, if you haven't enacted physically the promise of the gospel and said, I believe this with all my heart, something's missing. And I would urge you to rectify that as soon as possible. So what is this saying that happens in baptism? Here, here's the good news. I read this story recently from Sinclair Ferguson who talked about uh, a doctoral student that he knew from South Asia. He, he called his, himself Timothy. One day when Sinclair Ferguson, great theologian, felt like he had come to know him well enough, he said, Timothy, what's your real name? Timothy smiled and said, Timothy. Sinclair Ferguson smiled back and said, come on, tell me, what's your real name? He smiled again and said, Timothy. So he, he tried a different maneuver. He said, oh, what is the name that your parents registered for you? This time he referred to a name given his, his native Asian name. And then Sinclair Ferguson kind of thought like he had won a game of, of chess. Like, okay, now we know your real name. But then he continued. He had a secret move up his sleeve. Sinclair Ferguson said, so that's your real name? No, he said. And then Sinclair Ferguson said, I, uh, a teacher of theology, was theologically checkmated at this point when he said, Timothy is my real name because that's the name I was given at my baptism. The name I got when I was baptized is more of my identity than the name my parents gave me. Now, what I don't mean is that you should all should get a new name when you get baptized. What I want you to know is that you already did. Baptism is a naming ceremony. Matthew 28, verse 19, you're baptized into the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I wonder how many of you ever think if you've been baptized, if you ever think of that, that God is not going to discard you on this journey, this path when you're suffering, when you bear his name. You've got a new name. You're baptized into his name. You, you wear it now. You're armed with it. That's why we're ready for verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? You wear his name. You're united to him. Now look where he goes. After his suffering, which is, accomplishes your salvation, after you see his, his victory speech over everything that could be against you, watch him as he goes all the way up, ascended above every authority and power and principle 
principality and anything that could ever be against you. Watch him now as every being, whether cosmic or earthly, that has any amount of dominion or authority, he's over all of them, sovereign over disease and death, cancer or criticism, sickness or slander, whether it's the White House or Wall Street or your house, he's over everything. He died for you to win you and bring you to God. He declared his victory over those that were against the purposes of God. He's raised up at the right hand of God and Peter is saying, arm yourself with this. Arm yourself with his victory. Know whose you are so that as you're on this path on suffering, moving to glory, you understand there's nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man that could ever pluck me off this path to glory because Jesus is greater than all, bigger than all, better than all. My Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with my freedom in hand when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, that you would see that in his death and victory and resurrection and ascension, there is nothing that could ever keep you from him. No weapon fashioned against you will work. He will have the prize for which he died, you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask that we could celebrate. I praise you for the time when our orphan hearts were given a name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in that name, we belong to you as your children. So God, I pray that the principalities and powers, just like they heard your victory speech, they would hear now our victory song. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.